Good morning, everybody. My name is Tim Porter, one of the pastors here at Faith Community. South side, good to see you over there. North side, good to see you over there. I don't get a chance to really turn that way much, but I just want you to know that both of you, I know you're here. So uh, I usually point this way. And couch side, good to have you joining us online as well. So uh, it's good to be together. We are in a series that we're calling Fear Not, and we're seeking to uh, influence and raise the next generation of children um, who are able to live with courage in a world that's constantly changing. Um, Tim has been talking the last couple weeks, the other Tim has been talking uh, the last couple weeks about how, you know, raising children today, the world has dramatically changed and the rate of change is not slowing down. It's going to keep growing and growing and going and going and changing. And it can be scary. It can be scary to be a parent right now. It can be scary to be growing up in the midst of some of these changes. And we want to be focusing in this series on some of the constants. Some of the constants that are always there. So we don't have to live with fear. We don't have to live with apprehension. We don't have to live with nervousness as we face day in and day out. Some of those constants. One is that we have a God that we can really hope in. That's what Tim started the series with. We have a God who we can really, really hope in. Last week, the message, the emphasis was on God himself, the God who has arranged everything, who holds everything together, who's going to bring everything to conclusion because he brought everything into being. He's the very God through his spirit who dwells in our hearts as followers of Jesus. We have the power of God, not just outside of us. We have the power of God in us at the very core of our being. Today, we're going to look at another constant, and that constant is what our real threat is as human beings. What our real threat is as human beings. So I ask you a question, and again, just like I've done in the last couple sermons, don't uh, don't shout out loud what the answer is and don't speak for your spouse, okay? But here's the question. Really seek to answer it, introverts, I'll give you a few more minutes, just a, a few seconds to ponder it, but here's the question. What is your greatest threat to your life and well-being? What is your greatest threat to your life and to your well-being? Again, don't answer out loud, just ponder it for a little bit. I'm gonna say a few more things as you're thinking about this. Maybe something comes to mind right away. But the reason why I ask this question is because how we define the problem will dictate how we find a solution. So if we think that our greatest threat is economic to our well-being, we'll find an economic solution. And that's important, but that's not the ultimate threat. If we think the threat is political, then we're going to try to find a political solution. And that's important, but it's not the ultimate threat. If we think that it's societal, how the way the culture's going, that's our ultimate threat. We're going to seek to come up with solutions to deal with that threat. But that's not the ultimate threat, though it's important. The other reason why I want to ask this question is that you and I, we do feel and we do operate knowing that we live in a dangerous world and that there are threats all around us. And we give our energy and our thought and our attention and our money to try to navigate those threats. Do you know what your greatest threat is? I'm asking the question as well because our greatest threat actually doesn't draw attention to itself. Our greatest threat actually operates in such a way that it, it doesn't draw attention to itself. It makes itself, seem, makes itself seem very, very, very small in our eyes. So we don't pay attention to it. And we get all caught up in all these other threats. 
Today, we're looking at what is our greatest threat. And the reality that we're dealing with is to know that our greatest threat is not what's outside of us. Our greatest threat is not the culture. Our greatest threat is not the economics. Our greatest threat is not political. Our greatest threat is actually inside of us. Some time ago, this might be folklore, but some time ago, G.K. Chesterton was asked to write a little essay into a, a periodical, an essay on what is wrong with the world. And he wrote back, dear sir, stop. I am, stop. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. Our greatest threat is not outside of us. Our greatest th threat is actually inside of us. And the Bible introduces us to that threat. We're looking today in Genesis 4. We're gonna read from verses one through 10. Genesis 4, one through 10, it's on page three and the Bible's in front of you. If you'd like to read along there, we'll also have it on the screen as well for online and in the room where you can use your own Bible and app as we do every week. Just a brief intro if you're new to the Bible. Uh, the Bible begins, in the beginning, the Bible begins with God creating the world. And God reveals himself as this uh, master farmer and craftsman. And he, he's working for six days and he's bringing order into his world and bringing beauty into his world and um, bringing goodness into the chaos. And at the end of his creation week, at the end of his six days, he sits back and looks at his creation. He says, it is very good. And then he rests. He's making a world, he's making this world in such a way that he can dwell with humans in this world. That was the ultimate goal that he was going toward. God creates a garden in this world where he wants to dwell with his humans, Adam and Eve. That's chapter two, and then he, Adam and Eve rebel against God. And even though they were warned that the day you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the, God, the tree that God said, if you eat from this, you will die, they did it anyway. And humanity's never been the same since. The world's never been the same since. And Genesis chapter four through 11 is a spiral of decay and destruction and wickedness. And right after Adam and Eve disobeyed God, we've got domestic violence because a brother kills another brother. That's what we're looking at today as we're introduced to the threat that is in all of us. Verse one. Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought an offering to the Lord, or brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. 
Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to his brother Abel, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And the Lord said to Cain, where's your brother? Where's Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now we're a little bit as a family, a little bit of a hunting family. We have three boys. Uh, Levi's 20, will be 22 next month. Uh, Ian is 19, or will be 19 in June. And Seth is going to be uh, 16 uh, on Tuesday. So yes, we're going to the driver's ed place and it's going to be good. So we're in that kind of a stage. We're in that kind of stage as parents. And um, we... We do some hunting, um, I'd like to do more, but we do some hunting, and one of the things we do is almost every year is we go to northern Minnesota, northwestern Minnesota, and we do some deer hunting. And ever since I started bringing our oldest son, Levi, to deer hunting, we changed things up, is that I used to be up in a deer stand, and now I'm down to the ground in a ground blind, because I don't like the thought of an 11-year-old sitting up in a tree for very long uh, and getting slippy and falling out. I don't like that idea, it's a threat, I'm going to mitigate that. But we sit in the ground blind, and uh, the ground blind has actually worked out really well for me because as everybody else is freezing cold, I've got a little Mr. Buddy heater in there, and I'm staying nice and toasty, and it's, it's really quite great. Uh, so I use that excuse to stay warm. But anyway, we, to get prepared for the deer hunting season, we bring the deer blind out, and it's camouflage, and then we spray it down with earth scent. We spray down our clothes with earth scent. We, we close the, the, the little slit that we can see through and shoot through when we're watching the deer so we, it's as tiny as it possibly can be so they can't see us. We, at times, when our boys were really, really young and they would pass gas, I'd spray their butts with, uh, with the fresh scent too just to make sure, uh, just to make sure that the deer wouldn't, I mean, seriously, yeah, we're trying to do that. We did. I did do that, right? Um, why? Why did we do that? We did that because we knew that the deer knew that we were were a threat. And we didn't want them to pay attention to us. Now, I've been told many times that people, that either deer are really dumb or really smart. And I've seen both. Some deer can know, they know you're there from miles away. Other deer are just so dumb. I've been sitting in a grind blind and I've watched a buck walk right next to me. I could have pet its back as it's walking right next to me in the deer blind. Why? Because we concealed ourselves so well. And that's what your threat does to you. Your and my real threat in the world conceals itself to you and me, so we don't pay much attention to it. God introduces Cain and you and me to something about sin. He says in verse 7 here in this passage, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Sin is crouching at your door. This is a powerful, evocative metaphor if we really let it grab us. One, sin. We don't tend to talk about sin that much anymore. We tend to talk about dysfunction or unhealthy relationships. That's how we talk about sin. But the Bible says that's what sin is. See, you and I are made to love God. We're designed, custom fit to love God and to love others. And when we sin, we're sinning in such a way that we're not relating well to God and we're not relating well to others. 
And this word sin, the Bible uses different words for sin, but this word sin in particular talks about going astray. Going astray in relationship to God and going astray in relationship to neighbor. Cain is going astray in relationship to God and it's going to affect his brother Abel. That's what sin is. It's going astray from the way that God has designed us to love him and to love others. And that personal power, that sin, is crouching at the door. In other words, what God is saying is that it's right there. It's near you, Cain. And what we're seeing, what we're seeing in this passage is that it's so near that it's actually in Cain. And it's in you and me as well. Sin is still there. And sin makes itself look small in our eyes. It makes itself look small in our eyes. I'm not a cat person, I'm a dog person, okay? I'm not a cat person. I, I'd love to tell some cat jokes right now, but we have cat people here, and God bless you. But I'm a dog person. But one of the things I do love about watching cats is how they hunt. Even domesticated cats, if they're chasing after a bug or a mouse or a frog or a lizard or something like that, what do they do? They get down small. They crouch. Now, one, they're getting ready to pounce and to take off after this thing. Even the big cats do that. But what are they doing as, what's, what's the effect? They're making themselves look unthreatening to their prey. And that's the metaphor that God's using to help Cain and you and me understand this is what sin does to us. You ever notice how you can see somebody else's pride so much better than you can see your own? It's because sin makes itself seem so small. Oh, look at that cute little kitten. You know? That's what it does. It makes it seem so very small. This is why one of our roles as parents and one of our roles as friends to one another or uncles or aunts or grandparents is to introduce to our kids the reality of the destructiveness of sin because they won't see it on their own. We need to talk to our kids about sin. Many of you parents, you've gone through this. We've had to walk the battle of telling the truth more than telling lies and talking that through and giving consequences and discipline, all with that, because we have to introduce to our kids that truth-telling is better than lying. Now, just as a side note, if you're wondering if there is such a thing as a God and there is such a thing as a devil, and you're suspicious that there isn't maybe a devil, and that maybe that's a made-up thing about Christ that Christians have made up, think about this for a moment. Did you ever have to teach your kids how to lie? Hey, Levi, come here. Look, someday you're going to be in a work environment, and it's going to be costly for you to tell a lie. You probably got busted doing something wrong, and let me, let me prep you for that day, and this is what I want you to do. I want you to, tell, I want you to tell lies so well that it's hard to figure out if you're telling the truth or a lie or not. Use a lot of half-truths. Anybody have to do that as parents? What do we have to do? I know you're lying to me. And you're telling a lie that's so convincing. It almost has you convinced. Because I've done the same thing when I was your age. We have to teach our kids how to tell the truth. 
One of the ways that we did this as a family, and I recommend this, it's, it's, a, little, it's a little scary, and it's supposed to be. I remember my wife having some of these conversations with our sons, overhearing them, and I picked up the language too. It's like, look, Levi, Ian, Seth, when you, when you lie, when I lie, when we lie, we're siding with Satan. And you can believe all you want with, in God. That's, we know you do, but you are siding in that moment with Satan. And Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy, and he is the greatest liar in the world. Do you want to be in his kingdom or do you want to be in God's kingdom? And just so you know that the little lie that you just did right now because you were scared because you got in trouble and you thought you wouldn't get caught, you could avoid some of the consequences, all that kind of stuff, I know, I know because I've been there too. That lie will destroy your relationships one day with your spouse. It will destroy your work relationships because the world actually works on truth because that's how God made it. We wanna let them know that that lie will destroy them. Because all the other things out there that are threats that we give our attention to, they're important and they can do harm to us, but only sin can ultimately destroy us. What happens to us doesn't destroy us. How we respond to what happens to us destroys us. So important to see. Also so important to see because sin doesn't just Sin doesn't, uh, our sin doesn't just stay with one sin. It always multiplies. You ever notice that? You tell one, why, one lie, what happens? Next to, you're telling another one. Then you're telling another one. You're telling another one. You're telling another one. And then you forget what the truth is and who you told what to. Because sin, as God says to Cain, sin, it's crouching at your door. It makes itself look really small, but it wants to have its way with you. Translation here that we're using says it's contrary to you. Other translations might have it's seeking to master you or its desire is for you. Sin, the sin that's in our own hearts, our own sinful ideas and desires are actually wanting to destroy us and our relationships. It never is content with just one sin. It always leads to another. Not every addiction is sinful, but every sin is addictive. We see this with the life of Cain. How did Cain get to this spot where God is drawing near to him and saying to him, Cain, sin is crouching at your door and its desire is for you, but you have to master over it. Why? How did he get to this point? At the beginning of the story, Cain and Abel are two sons of Adam and Eve. The two first sons that, were, that are mentioned, we, don't, we know Seth later on, but we don't know the other sons and the names of Adam and Eve, but we do know these two because there's a point to the story that we need to learn from. Cain was the firstborn and he was a farmer just like his dad. Abel comes along and he's a, he's a shepherd. He's working out in the fields and caring for the flocks. And they come to a spot where they're gonna bring an offering to the Lord. They're gonna worship him in their, in their way. They're going to worship him through an offering. And, and Cain brings the, the first fruits from, from the ground and from his vocation. And Abel brings the first fruits from his vocation as well. He's a shepherd, and so he's going to bring one of the first, uh, firstborn portions of the flock that he has. And they both offer them to God. And we read that God accepts Abel's sacrifice and Abel. 
but he doesn't accept Cain and his sacrifice. Why? All the older brothers and sisters in the room are like, well, I know why, as a younger son, you know? It's like, <laughs> why? Why Abel's and not Cain's? The text doesn't really tell us. It's helping us to read between the lines and to do some investigative work. Some, some interpretations have been, and this has some plausibility to it, I don't think it's the best one, is that, you know, Abel brought a firstborn of the flock. He brought an animal sacrifice. That's what Cain should have brought. If Cain brought an animal sacrifice like Abel did, then he would, his sacrifice would be accepted as well. I don't think that's the best reading here. The type of offering that was given by Cain and Abel is called a, it's a, it's a devotion, an offering of devotion. The Hebrew word is mincha. And the whole point of a, of a devotion offering is that you are coming to the Lord and you can bring grain like Cain did or you can bring an animal sacrifice like Abel did. Whatever you bring, though, you are bringing to the Lord and showing I am fully and completely devoted to you. But God sees in Cain's heart that Cain is not fully and completely devoted to him the way that Abel is. See, Cain has something going on in his heart that the people of Israel had going on in their heart that we still have in our hearts is that often we can draw near to the Lord with our lips, but our hearts can be far from him. We can see that's what's going on with Cain because of how Cain responds to God rejecting his sacrifice. If Cain was devoted to the Lord and he offered a sacrifice of devotion to the Lord and he came to you or me and said, look, Cain, I don't accept a sacrifice. If we were devoted to the Lord, don't you think? We would say back to God, God, I am so sorry. I thought I did everything right. I thought my heart was right with you, but it wasn't right with you. Please forgive me. Tell me what I need to do to make this right because I belong to you and I love you. But that's not what Cain does. That's not how he responds. He responds by getting angry at God. How dare you reject my sacrifice? He becomes despondent and self-focused. His face falls. One of the reasons why we articulate a value here at Faith Community of being persistent in worship. So we can be like Cain. I've been like Cain. We're all tempted to be like Cain where our hearts are, are far from God but our lips are close. We can come to a worship service and we can sing our praises and we can listen to a sermon and we can even give gifts of generosity which are all good things. But then we, as soon as we leave the building, we are in an argument with our spouse because we're not worshiping God in that moment. We're worshiping ourselves. Cain wasn't devoted to God. Cain drew near to God with his lips, but not with his heart. See, Cain's sin wanted to destroy Cain and destroy the relationships that he had with God and with his family. And God is letting Cain know, Cain, your biggest problem isn't your brother and his devotion to me, because that's how Cain starts to interpret it. I can't kill God, and I'm angry with him because he didn't accept my sacrifice, and I can't, but what I can do is I can kill my brother. If he wasn't devoted for, to God, then he wouldn't make me look bad. 
So I'm going to get rid of the problem, which is Abel. That's how he seeks to do it. But God draws near to Cain and saying, look, no, 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 no. The problem isn't brother Abel. The problem is sin is crouching at your door, Cain. And its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. Now we, I think the biblical authors want us to identify with Cain, not so much with Abel in this passage. One, because we all at times draw near to God with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. But then also, we all know what it's like to be murderous. Now maybe that's too far a stretch for you. Think about it for a moment though. Have you ever held a grudge against somebody? Someone has done something to you and you're not gonna face into it, you're not gonna talk to them about it, you're just instead, you're gonna hold a grudge. And what are you doing? You're drinking a poison, hoping that they die, but it's actually killing you. It's a murderous intent there. Don't raise your hands, but has anybody ever given somebody else the silent treatment? What's the silent treatment? I'm gonna treat you as if you don't exist. And I'm gonna let you know. There's a murderous intent there. Jesus talks this way. It's really, really good that if you've never killed somebody, that's true. He says, but now, go a little bit deeper. Do you see that the anger in your heart is actually murder? When you're cut off in traffic, who's, got the, who's the problem? They are. If they just drive better, someone should stop them. To dig deep. DJ and I come from family systems. DJ is my wife. And uh, we come from family systems where there's sin, like in all of our families, there's sin. And how that sin is typically dealt with is it starts to, it's never addressed and it sort of builds up and bottles up and then somebody holds a grudge or they lash out. Somebody lashes out in response and they hold a grudge and then do the silent treatment for a long time and then eventually maybe when a holiday or a birthday or something like that comes along, we sort of play nice with one another and pretend like nothing happened and everybody's nice and nice, nicey, nicey until the whole cycle starts again. Until the whole cycle starts again. My wife and I were like, wait, this isn't honoring to Jesus. And if we bring this kind of system into our family, we're gonna have the same kind of conflict that's, that we're enduring right now. We're not gonna do that. By God's grace and kindness, God introduced us to a man named Ken Sandy and to his books called Peacemaking, where he teaches how to walk through forgiveness. One of the things that Deej and I had to learn as parents is how to ask one another forgiveness, teach our boys how to ask forgiveness, how to confess sin, how to grant forgiveness, how to what, what Jesus says to get the log out of your own eye when you see the problems that other people have, to look at your own heart first. We had to teach all those things. And our boys have seen modeled in front of them me asking my wife for forgiveness in the midst of a, a, you know, dinner, making dinner, and I'm, I'm short, and I'm curt with her, and I'm not respectful in, how I, in my tone. Own, and it's like pause, like, I'm sorry, please forgive me, please forgive me. That was not kind for me to say. Would you please forgive me for my tone? Our boys have learned to ask forgiveness of one another and forgiveness of us. Why? Because sin is crouching at our door, and it doesn't just want us to sin, it also wants us to handle sin sinfully. And that's where it becomes divisive. 
That's one of my greatest fears. But then we get glimpses. I mean, there's been times, the boys would tell you this if they remember, but my wife would tell you too. It's like, there's been times where our boys, we've coached them to ask forgiveness of one another like 20 times in a day and go through this whole process. Why? Because we're laying the groundwork and then every now and again we get these glimpses. This last Christmas break, all of our boys were home. It was wonderful. And there was, they got into a little bit of an argument and a conflict. And I was in the kitchen. I was doing something and I heard it. My wife was at work and I just made one reference and then I walked away. Just made one little reference and just walked away. But as I was doing something else, I was listening to the conversation. And they handled it well. They were in conflict. And they started to seek to understand one another and ask one another for forgiveness. And it was the greatest joy that this dad heart's ever experienced. Because one day they need to take care of us. <laughs> right? And I don't want them fighting and squabbling about that. I want them to be united in their attempts to care for us, right? No. It's bigger than that. It's bigger than that. Now, it might seem a little strange in this series where we're talking about don't be afraid. We want to live with courage and, and humility and confidence. That's really true. But I do want to tell you that there is one thing that you do need to be afraid of. And if you're not afraid of this, you're going to be overcome by some other fear that's actually not that threatening. And the fear that I want you to, the thing that I want you to be most afraid of is your potential, the potential in you to sin against others and God. Because that starts to put everything else in perspective. Anything that happens to you cannot ultimately destroy your relationship with God. But how you respond to what happens to you can. Now, I also want to emphasize that there is great hope in this because God of the Bible, the God of the Bible, doesn't just show us what our greatest threat is and what our greatest danger is. He's also the God who comes alongside of us and draws near to us to help us overcome our greatest threat. And that's what we see. That's what we see God doing in this passage. I've got a friend recently who wrote a, a little blurb on a blog that said, he said this, a friend of mine, um, he said, I grew up thinking that God was primarily concerned about my obedience and that my primary objective as a Christian was to get clear on all God's commands, all of his guidelines, and all of his ethical teachings, and to make sure that my life lined up with them exactly. And if I didn't live that way, God was waiting with a two-by-four behind his back to set me straight. That's not the God of the Bible. He said, it wasn't until my 30s that I was introduced to the truth that one of the primary things actually that God wants me to know is that he loves me and he draws near to me, especially, especially when I sin. Another passage in the Bible, the Apostle Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation has overtaken you that isn't common to everyone. But God is faithful and he won't let you be tempted beyond what you can bear because he will always provide a way out. Why does Paul say that? I think he says that because he sees. It's true, but also he sees God drawing near to people when they sin and when they're tempted to sin and he's giving them a way out. And that's what we see with Cain. God's drawing near. Notice what God does when he, know, he knows what's going on in Cain's heart. He knows that Cain's heart is not fully devoted to him. And he draws near. The Lord said to Cain, Cain, why are you angry? 
Why is your face fallen? If you do well, if you do well, will you not be accepted? And then the Lord said to Cain, even after he had already killed Abel, notice what God does. I know what you did. That's not what he does. He draws near. Cain, where's your brother, Abel? What's God doing? He's showing us that he draws near. He knows what's going on in our hearts. He knows everything that's going on. What he's doing is asking questions so that we can come clean on those things. Because we deceive ourselves and we don't see what we're doing at times and we don't acknowledge what we've done. God is giving Cain the opportunity to come clean. He's giving him the opportunity to repent. He's giving them the opportunity to draw near to him as God draws near to him. Some of my favorite things about God is that he is a master at asking questions at the right time. Jonah is angry sitting outside of the city of Nineveh waiting for God to destroy the city of Nineveh even though God said he's not going to and he's pouting. What does he do? He draws near to Jonah. Jonah, is it good for you to be angry right now? Job demands that he has some kind of a, an advocate before God because God has in some way treated him unjustly. What does he do? He asks a lot of questions. Jesus is a master at asking questions. Why? Trying to draw out our hearts so that we can understand what we've done and what our temptations are so that we can turn from them and seek to repentance. When we're asking good heart-level questions, which is something that all parents should learn the skill of asking really good questions, we're partnering, partnering with God in that moment to draw our kids' hearts back to him. Something in friends, students, everyone can learn to ask really, really, really good questions to draw hearts back. What happens at times when our kids do something that we just like, what in the world, why did you do this? We ask, we ask questions anyway, right? What got into you? What did you do? What were you thinking? And when, our, when we ask our kids, what were you thinking, what do they say? I don't know. Oh, yours too, right? <laughs> exactly. Maybe they don't know. Maybe they don't know what they were thinking. Now, sometimes they do, but maybe they don't. One of the great privileges we have as parents is introducing our kids to their own hearts and what's going on in them. And one of the things that we can do as parents is leverage all the sin that we have done and reflect on it, say, how did sin get the best of me? And how can I help my children overcome that by knowing who God is? We teach a tool here at Faith Community called the Fruit to Root Tool. Uh, we're, we train it in missional community leaders, just so you know, missional community leaders in our fall conference. We're gonna be training in it a little bit more this year. We have it in our, in uh, the Fruit to Root Tool is a key component of the tools in our freedom course. If you've not been a part of our freedom, freedom groups course, you've gotta sign up for that. We teach a very important tool, it's called Fruit to Root. And all it is is trying to connect the dots. It's just a tool to help us connect the dots between our sinful behaviors and what's going on in our hearts that lead to those sinful behaviors. So he asks questions. When our oldest son, and I asked him permission for this, when our oldest son was about 10 or 11, his name's Levi again, about 10 or 11, he was very, very, very mad at me and his mom because we would not let him play Xbox when he wanted to. 
And he was a really angry kid, really angry kid. He had a lot of cane in him, and he was very self-willed. And one day after learning how to do this fruit to root tool and learning how to use it myself, this again is like a decade ago, Levi's angry and I said, okay, look, let's do this a different way. I wanna do this tool with you and see what's going on in your heart. So we're a homeschool family and so I, we got a whiteboard, we used to have a whiteboard on our wall. So I'm like, okay, here's your behavior. I drew a tree and I've got, it's got thorns on it. I'm like, okay, here's your, here's, here's your behavior. You are angry at me and mom right now, right? You're really, really mad at us, right? I'm like, okay. I'm like, tell me what you're thinking. Be honest. I'm really mad at you and mom. Why? Because I don't think you care about me. Because I don't think that you really care about me hanging out with my friends right now. Because I think you're not very generous. I really am angry at you right now because of those things. You knew how much I wanted to play the Xbox, okay? Thank you for being honest. It's not true, but thank you for being honest. (laughs) What are you thinking about God right now? 10 or 11, well, God's distant. He doesn't care. So you think me and mom are sort of like God right now? Yeah. Okay. What do you want right now so badly that you're willing to sin to get it? And that's when it started to dawn on him. And this was God. This wasn't the tool. This wasn't me. This was God. He said, I'm willing to sin against you and, you and mom because I love to play the Xbox too much. I said, Levi, do you know what that's called in the Bible? It's called idolatry. And it just landed on him. Just landed on him. One of the greatest insights that I've had, and I'm still learning to parent, we're in a stage of coaching and all that kind of stuff, and, but one of the greatest insights I think that, that my wife and I have had is one is that I know what it's like to sin. How can I leverage the mistakes that I've made to help my boys, help our boys know how to, how to not do what we did? It's one of the most important pieces that we are sinning. We are, all of us, our greatest threat as individuals, all of us, is our own sin. The other was to remind our boys and let our boys know that I don't want you to think that I'm your hero. There was a time when I wanted to be that. I wanted to be my kid's hero, you know, dad, you know, all that kind of stuff. I'm like, no, 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 no. That's too much pressure. I want you to know my hero, and that's who Jesus is. Jesus needs to be your hero because he's the only one that can get you out of this. I can't. When God draws near to us, He draws near to us to draw us to himself. And we talk about, when we sing about God being mercy, his mercy is more, I love that song, because that's that's right out of the Bible, his mercy is more. When we sing that song, I want you to know that when we sing about God's mercy being more, that doesn't mean that he's soft on sin. He knows the damage that Cain has done here. Notice what God says to Cain. Verse 10, what have you done? What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So what that should tell us is that the things that are done to us that are sinful, you need to know God knows them, and God's going to justly bring them to account, just like he would do with Cain. 
He knows that Abel's blood has been spilled. He knows the wickedness has been done. And he is, that, that blood is speaking out. It is crying out to God. Abel's blood has been crying out to God for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of years, saying, justice, I was killed. And it's also saying condemnation. Cain deserves to die. But God doesn't do that. God shows mercy to Cain. Why? Because God knows that a day is coming when he's going to send somebody else whose blood's going to speak a better word than Abel's. We're going to come back to the author of Hebrews and come back to the book of Hebrews later on in this year. But this is something that the author of Hebrews says about Jesus, who was sent by God, who was very God of very God, to live for us, to die for us, and rise again for us. The author of Hebrews says this about Jesus. We come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Abel's blood cries out for justice and condemnation and Cain, you should die. But God doesn't kill Cain. But he doesn't let that injustice go either because he sends his son Jesus later on who dies fully devoted to God, far more fully devoted to God than Abel ever was. And he died a murderous death as well. But no one took Jesus' life from his. He gave that life up. Why? So his blood, his death, could speak a much better word than Abel's because Jesus' blood, an innocent, devoted man who died on our behalf, it speaks out justice and forgiveness mercy. It speaks out, justice has been satisfied. Forgiveness and mercy. Parents, as friends to one another, as youth workers, faith kids, volunteers, Awana, both to teach about the fear of the greatest threat and that God draws near and God is determined to help us overcome our greatest threat to the point that he gives his son and Jesus willingly dies so that we don't get what we deserve. We get what Jesus deserves because he got what we deserve when he died in our place. We're gonna celebrate communion together this morning, but before we do that, I want to ask you just to close your eyes and bow your heads and we can take the podium here, Doug, if you're okay to do that. I want to invite you just to close your eyes and bow your heads and I just want to lead you just through a simple prayer just of two things inviting God to do in your life right here, right now. I just want to invite you to ask God to examine your heart the psalmist says, test me and try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. God can see where sin is crouching at your door. Would you ask him right now to show you where that is?
Now would you ask God to give you the power and the inspiration to be able to overcome that sin, whatever it is. And ask God's Holy Spirit to remind you at the depths of your core of your being that God has done everything necessary for that sin to be forgiven. Jesus' blood speaks a better word than Abel's. It speaks justice satisfied. Abundant mercy. Father, thank you for your goodness, your mercy, your kindness, your steadfast love. Thank you that your mercy is more. Thank you that mercy triumphs over judgment. Amazing. Who's like you? God, as we take communion together and remember Jesus, would you please remind us and help our hearts to take in that your mercy is more, that you draw near to us so that we can draw near to you. And when we draw near to you, the devil must flee. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. You take your communion packet. One side is the bread, the other side is the cup. We're going to take the bread side first. It was on the night that Jesus was betrayed that he took bread and he gave thanks to his father and then he gave that bread to his disciples that were around him as well. And as they held that in their hands and we hold this in our hands, Jesus says to you and me, this is my body. It's given for you. Take, eat, and remember me. And now the cup. said this cup is the blood of a new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. Take, eat, or take and drink and remember me. As we close out our time together, we're going to sing one last song together. It's a song where we're singing both to God and also to our hearts to remember the truths of who God is, overcoming any unbelief in us. And so I want to ask you if you would, please stand and let's sing to God.